the beginning of love, the excitement of a journey, with no sign from above, a blank canvas, a new screenplay. Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover. In this episode and the next one, I would like to talk about two poems that have the same title, that title being The Rabbit Catcher. One poem is by the English poet Ted Hughes, the other by the American poet Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath famously committed suicide on a bitterly cold day in London in February 1963. And for at least two decades after her death, her relationship with Hughes and Hughes's putative guilt in her suicide was a constant topic in literary and feminist circles on both sides of the Atlantic. Plath liked to keep a journal. She had done so since her college years. And the fact that immediately after her suicide, Hughes destroyed the journal entries relating to those high-energy, passionate, high-dudgeon final months of her life when her best poems were being written and when her feelings about him were at their most raw and their most violent, that action by Hughes fueled all sorts of criticism and vituperation. Let me say straight out that I have always admired Hughes's verse. I particularly like the early animal poems like The Jaguar and The Pike and The Thought Fox, which have absolutely fabulous rhythms and images. I'm also a fan of his collection, Crow. Overall, I would say I prefer Hughes's poems to Plath's, perhaps because I can relate to them more easily. But I really have to say that as far as these two rabbit catcher poems are concerned, Plath's poem seems to me to soar far beyond Hughes's poem. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's wind back a little. Let's give some background. At the beginning of love, the These two poems refer to an outing, an excursion to the coast made by a family of four 60 years ago in May 1962, an excursion during which they stumbled on rabbit traps concealed in the grass. Now, it was not at all a happy excursion. At that time, Plath and Hughes had been married for six years. They had two very young children. Their daughter Frida was two and baby Nick was only four months old. And they were living in a big farmhouse in Devon with daffodils and peas and green beans, rhubarb, apple trees, 
cherry trees, beehives, two poets in love, working together in rural England. The poems are related to events that took place one weekend in that month of May 1962. Plath and Hughes had invited two guests to come down from London and stay the weekend with them. The two guests were the Canadian poet David Weevil and his attractive German-born wife Asya, who was a successful advertising executive in London. On the Sunday, as lunch was being prepared, Sylvia Plath, who already had an inkling of the attraction between her husband and Asya, popped into the kitchen to get something and stumbled on her husband and Asya locked in a kiss. Not surprisingly, this put a kibosh on the weekend. Indeed, soon Hughes and Asya would be living together and Asya would later bear Hughes a child. Anyway, the weekend had turned into a disaster. Plath was jealous, furious, profoundly hurt. She realised that her relationship with Hughes was coming to a shuddering end, and as her blood and her brain reacted, the suicidal impulse that had been a feature of her psychology since her teenage years began to resurface. The indiscreet guests hightailed it back to London, and not long after, Plath and Hughes separated. Now, Hughes's infidelity, his decision to exit the marriage, is a jagged element in the background of Plath's poem, The Rabbit Catcher. But Plath does not mention the infidelity explicitly in her poem. Indeed, it seems to me, in her poem, Hughes is a marginal figure. Now, you're waiting to hear the poem, and you will hear it in a minute. I find it absolutely extraordinary. It's a tour de force. It's part of the spectacular burst of energy, self-affirmation, and disillusionment that characterize the poems Sylvia Plath wrote in the final nine months of her life, before her suicide on that bitterly cold day in February 1963. What are the ingredients of these two poems? I would list them like this. A woman's fury, a man's silence about his indiscretion, 
the man's attempt to take a wider view of their relationship, an excursion to a windswept coastline, a clifftop, a background of fields and ocean, the discovery of rabbit traps in a hollow on top of the cliff face, the rabbit catcher's hands imagined around a mug, the woman's sense of life as a trap, her sense also of the proximity of death and her tremendous energy as she drives, as she thinks, as her mind races, as she storms her way through the wood. An ocean like a plate, oceans of hurt, fury with eyes wide open. Let's listen to the Plath poem. It was a place of force. The wind gagging my mouth with my own blown hair, tearing off my voice, and the sea blinding me with its lights, the lives of the dead unreeling in it, spreading like oil. I tasted the malignity of the gorse, its black spikes, the extreme unction of its yellow candle flowers. They had an efficiency, a great beauty, and were extravagant, like torture. There was only one place to get to, simmering, perfumed, the paths narrowed into the hollow, and the snares almost effaced themselves, zeros, shutting on nothing, set close like birth pangs. The absence of shrieks made a hole in the hot day, a vacancy. The glassy light was a clear wall, the thickets quiet. I felt a still busyness, an intent. I felt hands round a tea mug, dull, blunt, ringing the white china. How they awaited him, those little deaths. They waited like sweethearts. They excited him. And we too had a relationship. Tight wires between us. Pegs too deep to uproot. And a mind like a ring sliding shut on some quick thing. The constriction killing me also. Several words leap out for me here. Place of force, snares, constriction. The poem begins with a place of force. On the primary level, this, of course, is the windswept clifftop beside the sea in Devon. But that place of force is also the experience of living, the experience of being buffeted by events beyond your control, the experience of betrayal, the experience of having your voice torn out, of seeing the tight, carefully curated meanings that you have created for yourself with your partner, seeing 
that tightness, those meanings collapse and unreal and then projecting forward to see your body floating lifeless face down on the fat belly of the ocean, seeing your dreams, your ambitions unravel on the heaving sea like an oil slick, a black blot to be absorbed by the heavy ocean swell. Force is also clearly an element of the relationship between the poet and her man. The pegs that unite them are too deep to uproot, she tells us. Now, surely that is a good thing. It sounds as though their relationship has very solid foundations. But here the pegs are tied to wires, tight wires designed to kill. The relationship has transmuted itself into a snare. The poet talks of a mind like a ring. That ring evokes perhaps for some a wedding ring, but here, menacingly, it is the metallic ring of the trap, a trap that slides shut on some quick thing. And the word quick here has a double meaning. It can mean quick as in fast, swift like a swift rabbit, but it can also mean quick in the sense that Shakespeare often uses it, meaning alive, as in the expression, the quick and the dead. And of course, force is also related to the experience of giving birth, of pushing out a child, and also, I suggest, to the experience of pushing out a poem. The second stanza of the poem is about gorse, which, of course, in British pronunciation, rhymes with the word force of the opening line. Gorse is a plant with thorns and beautiful yellow flowers that is in bloom almost all year long. It's a familiar site on the southwest coast of England, just as it is in my native New Zealand. In New Zealand, the spikes were green. Here, they are black. In England, the gorse blossom is at its peak in the month of May. And I'm sure that Sylvia, who loved flowers and gardens, I'm sure she knew that in Devon and Cornwall, young lovers would traditionally give each other sprigs of gorse for May Day. Of course, here, the young lovers are no longer her and Ted Hughes. She has been sidelined. These yellow flowers conceal sharp spikes, malign black thorns, and to plath this type of Deception flowers around thorns. And let's not forget that this is written in the immediate aftermath of a deception that will ultimately cost her her life. 
This deception is extravagant like torture. She mentions extreme unction, one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, a sacrament that is administered to people who are about to die. And the way I read the poem, she already knows that her death is imminent, but she will not exit the stage without leaving an astonishing testament. What about the snares? Again, on the primary level, the snares refer to the traps that have been placed there by a man hoping to catch rabbits. Perhaps, as Hughes says in his poem, a local looking to catch a rabbit for a protein-rich Sunday stew. But put yourself in Plath's shoes. Her love life has been destroyed. She is alone, hurt and abandoned with a baby at her breast. Her teenage scepticism about the adventure of life has resurfaced. And she pictures the rabbit catcher as someone dull, blunt and sadistic, his hands around a tea mug. She pictures him as someone who derives pleasure from the kill. Plath had always had a sense of life as a trap, a bell jar with no oxygen to breathe. Death was in many ways a relief. In Plath's poem, Tulips, which was written a year or two before this, she is lying on a bed in a hospital ward after an operation and someone has delivered flowers, flaming red tulips. And she rebukes these intensely colourful red tulips for being too bright, too vivid, for exploding with such vivacity into the aseptic white paleness of the hospital ward, for disrupting the peaceful listlessness with which she would abandon her body to the surgeons, abandon herself to death. As she puts it in that poem, a dozen red lead sinkers around my neck. The third and fourth stanzas of The Rabbit Catcher run like this. There was only one place to get to, simmering, perfumed, the paths narrowed into the hollow, and the snares almost effaced themselves, zeros shutting on nothing set close like birth pangs. The absence of shrieks made a hole in the hot day of vacancy. The glassy light was a clear wall, the thickets quiet. Here, snares, birth and death are all connected. 
the shrieks of a trapped rabbit, the cries and groans of a woman giving birth, the snares on this cliff top are bunched up close against one another. The pegs and wires that link her to this man, this man who has so recently betrayed her, are too deep to uproot. She is caught, the wires cut into her skin. On this windswept cliff top, all she sees is evidence of more traps. The man is happy to sink into the hollow on the clifftop and taste the warmth of the sun away from the wind. But how can she, when the evidence of cruelty, including him, is all around her? Ultimately, the only place to get to is death. Go into the quiet thickets, go through the hole, through the glass wall, into the vacancy, find yourself on the other side, your life unspooling, unravelling on the vast ocean of death. Yes, except that, on the way, Plath will hunt down some absolutely extraordinary poems. Of these two remarkable writers and remarkable people, Plath strikes me as the more absolute and also the more capable of commitment. It was she that left her country behind to live in her husband's. It was she who gave herself fully to the marriage. Now here she is, breastfeeding her four-month-old son on a clifftop in a roaring gale, while the husband and artistic soulmate in whom she has invested her trust ditches her. In one sense, the quick thing caught in the trap is love, its commitment, its trust, its their partnership. What is left her but constriction? And yet, seen from another angle, I would say that she overcomes the constriction. She bursts through the wires. On this clifftop, the wind may have momentarily torn off her voice, but we see before us a poet undergoing violent contractions and birth pangs as she gives life to this new quick thing, this absolutely extraordinary poem which will be published after her death. Tune in to the next episode where we talk about the poem that her ex-husband Ted Hughes wrote in reply to hers. Mm.